This Dharma talk by Joan Sutherland Roshi, Red Dust 2, was given at Cerro Gordo Temple in Santa Fe, New Mexico on October 24, 2008. Good evening again. Thank you for coming. Um, last week I was talking about the red dust, which is the world as we ordinarily experience it. It's the world of um, karma and the laws of physics and having the alarm clock go off in the morning and all of that stuff. And how there seems to be a, um, a way in the journey of the spiritual practice where we begin in the red dust and then there's some some of us then go looking for something else and go off deep into the mountains in some metaphorical sense and then eventually come back around to the red dust but there's something transformed about it which is to say that actually there's something transformed about us and that that maybe happens many times in a life, maybe many times in a day, that that movement um, it, from the red dust into the mountains and back to the red dust again. So I wanted to, um, to spend a little bit more time tonight talking about some of the characteristics of the red dust world as we first encounter it um, before we've taken any kind of journey anywhere else. And I want to, want to talk in particular about two things. One is dukkha, and the other is gates. So one of the things I, I really like about Buddhism is that in the first sentence of the first paragraph on the first page, it says, life is dukkha. There's no hedging, there's no sort of leading up to it or like breaking it too gently. <laughs> you know, it's just, boom, right there, deal with this. I've been wondering lately whether we have made a mistake in that in the West we tend to translate dukkha as suffering. And I've been wondering if that has actually um, been a mistake that's led to some uh, misunderstandings that I wanted to talk about today. The word dukkha actually means something closer to unsatisfactoriness. And that seems a helpful thing. Life is has a quality of unsatisfactoriness. Uh, and I think that's because when we think of dukkha, we think of everything from walking into the kitchen and the sink is full of dishes again, you know, to ethnic cleansing. It's, it's a pretty big spectrum of experience. Um, if, if we differentiated between unsatisfactoriness and suffering, then we could pull unsatisfactoriness in a little bit closer, and that could include the dishes, you know, and, um, and could include things that, that are hard in our own lives, and the ways we react to them that create unhappiness for ourselves. And then maybe we can hold suffering for the, the bigger stuff, you know, the, at the ethnic cleansing level of stuff. When we first begin to become aware of this unsatisfactoriness of things, again, some of us want to do something about that. And it seems really clear 
in Buddhism and in our experience as we go on, that the quality of satisfactoriness or unsatisfactoriness isn't really related entirely to the circumstances of our lives. Often we begin with the idea that if we can just line up the external world in the right way, then things will be satisfactory. If we have the right job, the right home, the right partner, the right um, behavior by our partner <laughs> in, in relationship to us. You know, if we could just get all those things lined up, then life would be satisfactory. And um, generally, we begin to see the futility of that and begin to really understand that in the mix there, to, to some great extent, is our own attitude toward things. Um, so that works at the level of unsatisfactoriness. It gets squishy when we move out into the realm of things on common suffering. If, if you were talking about ethnic cleansing, that's not just an attitude adjustment that's going to fix that. And we can make the mistake of, of becoming sort of fundamentalist and saying, everybody creates their own reality. It's all on them. If you're being ethnically cleansed, you know, that's because of your karma or your bad attitude or you should just feel better, you know, whatever it is. And that's a kind of ridiculous position and not terribly compassionate. So that seems to me to be the value in making a distinction between the pervasive, unsatisfactory quality of things in the red dust initially and the kind of suffering that goes on that is much more complex and um, won't, won't just be um, solved by, by meditation you know, or, or koans or changing our, our attitude about them. And something I've been wondering a lot about is whether uh, the, the pervasiveness of the unsatisfactory, our being, how much we're caught up in that, actually gets in the way of our being able to address the larger questions that I'm putting under the category of suffering. If we're so bound up all the time in reacting and feeling bad and not enjoying and, and um, criticizing and judging ourselves and others, that's a tremendous amount of energy locked up in a very tight space. And it seems to me that if, if meditation is good for opening up that tight space, for knocking those walls down, for stopping those habitual behaviors in response to unsatisfactoriness, maybe that frees up energy in order to um, open our hands and begin to do something about the larger communal sufferings that people suffer. Um, so, Something we discover often is that there just is no way to arrange the external circumstances to make things satisfactory. And um, that's actually in the, still in the first chapter of Buddhism, <coughs> excuse me, because it's in the, in the life story of Shakyamuni. When he's a young prince living in the palace, everything is perfect, it's beautiful and lovely, and he wins every race and gets every girl and all that stuff. And still there is this feeling that it's not, there's something not right. There's something out of whack, which then leads him to, to make the spiritual search. So it can't, be, it can't be an external thing, or it can't only be an external thing. There's got to be something that happens internally as well. And I can certainly remember thinking back to my own 
adolescence when all these questions were starting to come up, you know, really feeling like if the world would just get its act together, you know, things would be better. I mean, it was um, the Vietnam War was going, and Nixon was president, and there were a lot of a lot of reasons to think that if we could just fix those things, that things that things would be better. And I remember a kind of um, unripe fruit quality to my sense of unsatisfactoriness. So that first waking to the sorrow of the world has a kind of unripe quality to it, a kind of uh, an edge of anger, an edge of can, can have, I'll speak only for myself, for me it had an edge of anger and outrage and self-righteousness. Um, and one of the things that I think happens in the spiritual journey that I'm talking about over the long arc of things is that the nature of the sorrow changes. That, that sorrow doesn't go away, but it becomes something really different than that early, fiery, outraged sorrow when we first become aware that, of the injustices in the world, the unfairnesses of life. So um, there we are in the red dust, feeling all that stuff, and as I was saying last week, feeling that the, that the world of the red dust is presenting us with questions like about unfairness, like about death, like about illness, all that kind of stuff, that for some of us it doesn't provide answers that satisfy us. For some it does, for some it doesn't. And so we go looking for something else. And in talking with a lot of people who, who've ended up taking up meditation, I find that many people have experiences fairly young of of what feels like another world, a, a deeper world, a truer world. Um, they get glimpses of that and they come to meditation because they want to find out what was that and how do I connect with that and how do I have more of that in my life. Uh, the the sensei who was the founder of Aikido had a turning experience in his life where the, the earth cracked open in front of him and light just poured out. And that's a sort of literal version of those moments when things seem to crack and we get a glimpse of something larger, deeper, brighter, more true. Um, I can remember myself when I was young sitting under a black walnut tree in the Sierras outside of Yosemite. It was in the autumn and the leaves on the tree had all gone golden. And a gust of wind suddenly came up and knocked a lot of the leaves off the tree, and they fell to the, sort of swirled and fell to the ground around me. And then, when they hit the ground, a couple of the leaves seemed to fly up, to, to rise up as if they were going to return to the tree. And it was the most beautifully disorienting moment, and I realized that there were yellow moths that had been caught on the, on the wind as well. But, but it just looked exactly as though they were the leaves returning to the tree for a moment. And in that beautiful disorientation, that encounter with beauty that unselfs us, knocks us off ourselves as the center of the world, um, something, something really opened. It was as if a crack in the world opened for me in that moment. And I saw behind the sort of what, what looked like the painted backdrop now of the world, I saw a world in which everything was exactly the same, except as things moved, they left trails of energy that were light. 
so that so the birds and the butterflies and the moths and the leaves and everything were leaving all of these trails of light in the air, and that's not a you know that particularly fascinating experience, but it's typical of those moments when things open up and we see something um, very compelling. And it, that seems to be a kind of answer to the unsatisfactoriness of the red dust world. So, um, the world, that red dust world, anyway, offers us clues and omens and gates to that other place. And uh, it seems to me that there are different kinds of gates. There are bright gates and there are shadow gates. Um, and the bright gate gates can be those kinds of experiences when they happen spontaneously. They can be a love of reading when you're young. They can be the basketball scholarship that gets you to college out of a small town. Someone, you know, a teacher who sees something in you and draws that out. All of those things can be bright gates. The shadow gates tend to be in the you know the general realm of sex, drugs, rock and roll, and fast cars. You know? <laughs> but I don't want to make those bad because it seems to me that that often those are attempts to to break out, to break out of the red dust world, to have a kind of transcendent experience to enjoy a, um, an intensity that seems to break things open some. But they're shadow gates that can also lead to a lot of, um, a lot of danger and difficulty. So the gates open up. We take them or we don't take them. But that seems tremendously important. Um, when you think back on your own life, what were the what were, the, what were the unsatisfactorinesses? What were the questions? What were the gates that opened for you? Which ones did you walk through and which ones did you not? Um, and then it seems that even the the gates that, that seem to work, and, um, for example, psychedelic drugs really worked for a lot of people. Every, almost everybody who's ever done psychedelic drugs will say, I saw something that I know was real. I know that that was a, a true thing. But it leaked away. It disappeared. And this seems crucially important. The reason I think that those experiences don't stick in some way, they stick only as a memory, but they don't stick as a, as a felt experience, is because the kind of um, understanding that we're hoping for doesn't come just from seeing something. It's not enough just to see it. Even having a big experience in meditation is not enough. There has to be an embodiment of that experience. We have to bring whatever it is we've seen into our bodies, into our hearts and minds, and really make it ours and live with it, and then open our hands and let it flow out of our hands into the world. And notice what happens when we do that. And all of that is part of the experience of realization. I think we make a mistake when we think, 
the, the vision or the big experience is, is the realization. The realization is also all of the stuff that happens afterwards, or it will just leak away. Because it needs to be embodied, integrated, and shared. By which I don't mean you stand on a soapbox on the corner and tell everybody about your great experience. It means you find the way that's truest for you to share what you now know. So if we call this realization, then realization has two aspects. It has the aspect of seeing and understanding something, and it has the aspect of making it real. And that's why when we find the gates out of the red dust world and we take them and we go deep into the mountains in whatever way we do that, we can't stop there. It's incomplete. It's incomplete until we come back and notice how the world has been changed by our experience. Um, there's a, in, again, in the, in the life story of the Buddha, which I appreciate more and more all the time as a, as a myth, you know, um, as quite a profound myth. There's a, the one version, one version of the story when the, when the Buddha has enlightenment under the tree, there's a light that kind of rolls out from the tree through the world, and all the prison doors are, are unlocked, and everyone is set free, and it even goes down into the hells, and all the denizens of hell are freed and, um, and enlightened too. And that, to me, has that quality of when we bring our realization to the world, the whole world is transformed, the whole world is changed uh, in some fundamental way. And we find um, a different kind of sorrow, no longer the sorrow of um, outrage and a feeling of unfairness and injustice uh, and a sort of, you know, just get it together world. But more a sorrow of a completely broken, open heart. The sorrow of a heart um, that is willing to press itself up against the great broken heart of the world and not turn away. And that, it seems to me, is, um, is the ultimate fruit of the spiritual journey. That willingness to be broken-hearted in a broken-hearted world and to open our hands and do what we can. So um, I'm going I'm to stop there tonight and I'll keep talking about this if it's interesting to you and talk about what happens in the deep in the mountains part that allows our hearts to break open in that way and, and what it means to come back uh, in the koan image to sit by the charcoal fire again to come back to the world. And um, as long as I would welcome any comments or questions that you have. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.